We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode of Inside Golf Podcast is brought to you by RickRunGood.com. All of the stats, tools, and info that I'll be referencing on this podcast can be found over at rickrungood.com. We actually just added some major changes to the site that we just unveiled last week. There were a bunch of new stats added to the custom model, 23 of them actually, including good drive percentage, opportunities gained, strokes gained total on pretty much all of the PGA Tour courses, a bunch of previous major courses, a bunch of different types of courses, short courses, Long courses, courses with different green types, courses with fast greens, slow greens. I know I'll be looking at fast greens for this week at Augusta. It supports multiple slates as well. You can toggle between European tour fields, live fields, showdown. Um, You can use your model for any of those and keep it as well. So we have import export capability as well, where now you can export the weights and golfer information to create their own calculations, then import it back into the model to run lineups. We also added a new ownership projection tracker, I believe, like probably by the time this is coming out, already starting to get ownership projections ready for the Masters. The DraftKings pricing has been out for a couple of days now. So Uh, it's already starting to take shape. But one thing that we added with this is we wanted to track the ownership through the week, how it changed, how it was trending. Um, That was a really interesting thing that we observed with uh, players coming in higher than certain percentages. And there's only so much Mike can do in terms of getting out those as late as possible on Wednesday night. So we thought that this would be a helpful tool to help you understand the direction in which players were going, which sometimes ends up helping you project who comes in way higher than a lot of the projections. If you can see a trend in ownership throughout the week, not only do you get all of those new tools, but you also get all of my premium articles, my Monday course breakdown, That will be up first thing on Monday morning. Tuesday, season-long fantasy rankings for the Masters as well. Hopefully, you're not having to make too many waiver wire moves this week. Uh, And then my Wednesday final DraftKings thought where I break down the entire DraftKings slate, give the latest projected ownership on Wednesday afternoon. I break down the weather, which I will talk a little bit about today because I just started looking at the weather for the first time here on Saturday and 
it's going to it's going to play a factor this week. I'll say that. I mean, it's definitely something to pay attention and monitor as the week goes on. Um, I'll dive in a little bit more in depth about how that will actually affect how the course plays. Uh, but I do all of that in the most in-depth fashion on Wednesday when we have the most accurate weather projections, the most accurate ownership. I give you all the information that you need before you build your lineups. So sign up today using promo code Andy. That is the important part if you want to help me out. I am not great with self-promotion, particularly with this podcast. I don't do it too often in terms of um, asking for you guys to subscribe and write reviews, but these typically historically have been my most listened to episodes throughout the week. Um, So if you are just here for Masters Week and this helps you in any way and you have five minutes to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or tell a friend or retweet the podcast on Twitter if it helped you out at all. These are really the big weeks for me where hopefully somebody listens for the Masters and says, oh, wow, this is really helpful for golf. Maybe I'll bet on golf every week. I mean, not that I'm trying to turn everybody into degenerate gamblers, but maybe this hopefully draws some interest in people that are here just for the Masters and they stick around more often for... uh, for some of the other weeks. So anyway, um, this will be out on all podcast platforms. I'm recording this on on Saturday evening on the West Coast. So it uh, should be out late Saturday night, and I'll tweet everything out on Sunday morning. All right, Masters. I think this is both the uh, the hardest and the easiest podcast of the year to record because on one hand, I always try and approach these uh, to provide some new information or at least a new angle that you aren't going to find anywhere else. Uh, And this golf course and the content surrounding this tournament, in my opinion, is probably the most oversaturated week of the year. Um, And yet, I've got some takes on this one. The golf course has changed a lot. It continues to change. It continues to evolve. Uh, I have some opinions on those changes and the golf course. Uh, But a lot of the stuff I know that most people already know. So I will try and not belabor the point on some of the obvious stuff. Focus on some things that I think are really important. Uh, And some of that is the obvious stuff. I don't think that this is the week to be overly contrarian just for the sake of being overly contrarian. A lot of the things that you're going to hear, whether it be regarding short game or course history or long iron play or distance, um, those are generally correct. Um, So again, I think I will try, I have a couple different takes on the golf course. I, I probably see this playing out maybe a little bit, differently than others, although I don't know because I I don't know what people are starting to say already about this tournament. Uh, But we shall see. And then, of course, I will get I will get to talk about some players, uh, get to the picks, which everybody wants. Uh, The prices on DraftKings are out, so we can talk a little bit about the DraftKings pricing. And 
the odds as I record this on Saturday evening haven't really reset to what I believe will be the best prices tournament week. So I can talk about some of the players that I, what direction I think their odds are going. But for the most part, I would wait until Monday morning. I don't think that this is really the time to make bets if you haven't already. If you've already made some futures bets and you have some great numbers, um, great, all the power to you. But if you're still waiting to make a move, my hope is that on Monday morning, I'm sitting looking at it now, and it looks like the big three, which I expected to be by tournament week, uh, like 8, 10, and 12, I'm looking at Rory at plus 750 pretty much across the board. Scotty Scheffler at plus 750. John Rahm at plus 850. And John Rahm was plus 750 earlier yesterday. So I guess Rahm is starting to move. But I'm still holding out hope that he moves a little bit more. And there hasn't really been any movement in the high teens. Spieth is hanging at 18. Cameron Smith hasn't moved at 21. Cantlay's 20 or 18 everywhere. JT's 22 everywhere. Xander's 22 everywhere. So Jason Day is 25 everywhere. Um, so hopefully those moves, but we'll we'll get to some of the players later. Let's talk about uh, the golf course and this tournament. This is the first major championship of the year uh, for anybody that is looking at this from a from a total bird's eye view and maybe just coming in to hear some of the basics uh this is held every year at augusta national golf club a private golf course in augusta georgia the field at the masters is smaller than the other three majors uh it's an invitational event it's usually between 85 and 100 players so it's generally easier to make the cut because after 36 holes the top 50 and ties will advance to the weekend. I believe there are 88 players currently in the master's field. Um, maybe 87 after Aaron Wise withdrew, but then the winner of the Valero Texas Open will also get a spot. Um, so it's a much smaller field. It's much easier to make the cut in DraftKings. There's usually a pretty high six of six percentage. And scanning through the former winners here and the winning prices, last year we had Scotty Scheffler win this tournament at 10 to 1. He was 16 to 1. Hideki Matsuyama won it at 10 under. Dustin Johnson won that very wet uh, November Masters at 20 under. In terms of course conditions, that was a pretty big anomaly. I would not expect to see 20 under uh, anytime soon again, especially with the mindset that it seems that tournament organizers are in these days. 2019, Tiger Woods won at 13 under par. 2018, Patrick Reed won at 15 under par. 2017, Sergio Garcia nine over par, nine under par, sorry, in a playoff over Justin Rose. 2016 was the Danny Willett year at five under over Jordan Spieth and Lee Westwood. 2015, Jordan Spieth won at 18 under over Phil Mickelson and Justin Rose by four shots. 2014, you had Bubba 23rd at eight under. 2013, Adam Scott, 9-under. 2012, Bubba, 10-under. A lot of 10 and 9 and 8-under, 13-ish. But usually that 8 to 13 range gets it done with the outliers being 5-under the Danny Willett year and 
20 and 18 under the Jordan Spieth and Dustin Johnson years. But Augusta National Golf Club, it was designed in 1933 by Alistair McKenzie and Bobby Jones on an old indigo plantation and plant nursery. It's a par 72. It now measures 7,545 yards. That's new this year, so it's even a little bit longer than last year. Water comes into play on five holes. The fairways are ryegrass. The rough is 1.38 inches ryegrass, so barely any rough. I mean, it's you know, they call it the first cut at Augusta, but it's it's really not too much to be concerned about, especially off the tee. The greens measure 6,486 square feet on average. They are bent grass. They are a pure bent grass, and they run 14 on the stint meter, which is probably about the fastest greens that you will see all season in terms of the PGA Tour and live for that matter. Um, this golf course was a former plant nursery, and each hole is named after a tree or a shrub that it has become associated with. This was once, and there were some more agronomy changes that I won't belabor too much, but uh, it was originally a Bermuda course until the late 70s. Um, it was fully replaced with bent grass in 1981, which resulted in significantly faster putting surfaces. Um, and the bent grass has worked out, even though it can be problematic in the South. This is, they have cooling systems under the greens. This is probably the most well-maintained, well-run, the most time spent, money spent, money put into this golf course out of maybe any golf course on the planet. I'm sure there are a couple in Japan that rival it. Uh, but in terms of the uh, advancement of the cooling systems under the greens, uh, the effort that the grounds crew puts in, uh, it is world-class, world, world-class. So there is some weather in the forecast this week, which we'll talk about a little bit. Uh, but what helps is that generally uh, the tournament organizers are able to get this golf course generally pretty close to how they want it with some room in either direction in terms of scoring. Um, and it's hard. Last year, it played as the second hardest course on the PGA Tour, featured the third hardest set of par threes, the second hardest set of par fours, and the fifth hardest set of par fives. Uh, and there's been a lot of changes to this golf course. It has evolved with, as has modern technology over the years. There were a lot of changes last year. Two holes on the back nine last year were lengthened and remodeled. The 11th being the big one, White Dogwood, that got a new tee box. That lengthened that par four to 520 yards. The fairway was recontoured and widened by up to 15 yards. Trees on the right side were removed and... The first cut was also removed on the right-hand side, replaced by some more fairway short grass. 15 got longer last year. That was also lengthened by 20 yards, with that fairway also being recontoured. Um, a little more first cut was added on holes 9 and 10, which are both par 4s. New green surface were added to the 3rd, the 13th, and the 17th in 2022, and then this year, there are more changes to the course, and in particular, the par 5 13th hole. Uh, trees have been removed, and a, tea, a new tee box has been installed 
adding 38 yards to the hole, 35 yards to the hole, the tee box is a little bit more elevated. The, the hole now plays 545 yards, the 13th. Still isn't a particularly long par five, uh, but as a hard dogleg left, and the fact that Ray's Creek still guards the green, the extra 35 yards, and players have said this, I think will make the decision to go for the green and two more difficult. Um, there's a great quote from Bobby Jones that I found that talks about the 13th hole where he says, you know, it's been lengthened over time and that the decision to go for the green in two in its original design should be a momentous one, right? And uh, over the years, it has turned into a situation where longer players are hitting middle and even short irons into that hole. And Fred Ridley talked about when he was making this changes that how momentous is a player hitting a nine iron into that green? That's not really a momentous decision at all. That's not really a decision at all. So to address that concern, and I quote from Fred, put more club in the hands of players for their second shot, uh, they made a new tee box, uh, which I'm excited for. I think that that hole has gotten better uh, from the new tee box, and I think that it is going to create a decision, and it is going to only help longer players even more because it is going to exaggerate the advantage that longer players that can reach the greens into have. And I'll talk about that a little bit more later, but players that have the ability to hit these greens into, I know there's always, we'll talk about the Zach Johnson year where he hit all, he weighed up on all the par fives, but historically when you really dive into it, the players that have the ability to hit these par fives and two at a consistent rate, have a huge leg up. So I do think at a macro level, you're going to hear a lot about the 13th hole. And we're and if we're just talking about, okay, how does this actually affect how we should break down the golf course? In my opinion, it's just another reason to give credence to players that hit the ball pretty far. And I have some quotes from Cantlay talked about this pretty well on the No Laying Up podcast about how this golf course has changed over the years and evolved from a golf course that was really a shot maker's golf course where you're trying to shape the ball on every hole. And there are a lot of holes that are three woods off the tee where Cantley was basically like, no, I can't think of a hole where it's not driver bomb away with driver long and hard driver. Um, which is a shame in a lot of senses, in my opinion. And I don't think that, the course has been able to maintain all of its integrity with the changes, but I think just using a microscope on number 13 and what they've done, I think that's a pretty good one, in my opinion, because I don't want to see the longer players hit nine irons into any par fives anymore. And I think if there's one golf course that is steeped in so much tradition and has been so iconic for the sport of golf over the years— that it's hard not to get a little romantic about how this tournament used to be won in the 1930s, in the 1940s, in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, all kind of through on up until the last 10 years where it feels like there's been this sizable shift in terms of the strategy that players are employing, where if you go back on YouTube 
and watch some of the masters and the masters YouTube channel does a great job of this. You can actually watch a lot of these older masters, the amount of long irons that players are hitting on this golf course throughout the, you know, sixties and seventies and eighties, even through the early nineties, uh, is remarkable. And so even though the golf course has been lengthened a ton over the past two decades, it hasn't really even kept up with the distance gains because the distance gains still create a situation where as much as they lengthen the golf course, they're not lengthening it at the same rate that players are advancing their distance. And as a result, you have holes like 13 turn into a nine iron, which it never was back in the day. So I think for the most part, I'm excited for that specific change. There were a couple more that aren't really going to affect the way that the golf course plays. I mean, uh, they installed a bunch of trees and ornamentals around the teeing area. That's going to be a new uh, spot that's kind of set apart from the patrons for players and caddies. I'm still talking about that 13th tee. New television camera positions were added to give a better sense and shape of that hole. Heating and cooling elements have been installed to improve the agronomics of the tee, and the entire hole was sandscaped to promote firmer and faster conditions when the elements allow for it. Uh, There were alterations to one through five, uh, removal of some trees to increase the viewing options, and capacity for some more patrons. Uh, there were, they did some sand capping to the putting surfaces, uh, which were replaced with an alternative variety of bent grass as opposed to Augusta's traditional A1 bent grass. And some of those greens were recontoured as well. Um, and there is some new grass on the par three course, which is going to serve as a testing ground for future potential masters, if this grass, if they feel like it works at the par three course, uh, they are going to make some changes, I believe, to uh, the specific type of bent grass, but they're going to test it on the par three course first. Okay. Anyway, none of that matters. Um, A lot of the primary goal for a lot of the changes that they made, I mean, sometimes it feels like a lot of the time they're just tinkering on this golf course for the sake of tinkering, but they wanted to make some wider corridors for patrons to move around. It's going to open up viewing options. I think one thing that I will say about Augusta national is they are always working on how this golf course looks on television. Um, and I continue to believe that they probably do the best job of creating a television product, although not, perfect in terms of how they show the golf course. Um, They show this golf course really well. And I think some of the changes, although most people won't notice them, um, they will show really well on TV. Uh, They did some work to the fourth and seventh greens, really just a lot of shaping of the edges, which is a really normal maintenance thing to do generally on and around the greens on uh, basically around the edges on greens that are surrounded by bunkers that get a lot of play. Because what happens is the sand gets splashed out and builds up and creates these rounded edges. So they've done a lot of flattening with that. And now, overall, the remodeling takes the course to, as I mentioned, a quoted 7,545 yards, a par 72. But 
as my good friend Steve Bamford has pointed out, the fairways are even traditionally mown against the whole direction to minimize driving distance. So it plays even longer than that, probably closer to 77, 7,800 yards. So uh, pure yardage at this point, in my opinion, the way the golf course is set up now is is honestly more important than creating the right angle to the flag. I mean, Augusta has constantly been talked about a golf course where it's all about angles and positioning off the tee is actually underrated. I'm, I'm not really so much of that mindset at this point. And I think the players are starting to realize that too, where it's not as much, of course, positioning on the right side of the fairway, particularly on holes with certain difficult pin positions, because these greens do have tons of little pockets. So they, they play a lot. The greens play a lot smaller than they actually are because if you're not in the right pocket, then the ball is going to potentially filter down all the way off the green into a collection area. Uh, But at this point, players are starting to realize the course is so darn long that it's almost more advantageous. Well, in, in a certain respect, you're just putting yourself behind the eight ball and you have to be such a good long iron player if you are going to give up distance, uh, which I'll talk about a little bit more when I get into some of the stats that I'm looking for. Uh, I want to run through a couple of trends and a lot of these are from Dave Tyndall's article who does such a great job with his trends piece for the majors. Love Dave. Had him on for the Open last year. Excited to talk to him again for this year's Open. He's uh, he's a Royal Liverpool guy, so that should be fun. But anyway, he puts out an incredible piece. I would encourage everyone to check that out. Uh, so I'll run through a couple of these, and then we'll dive into the stats because I do think that it's important to talk about what has happened over the last 10 years with the Masters. I think that this is a tournament where... And I'm not a huge trends guy whatsoever. I'm generally a huge course fit guy, and I bend the knee far more to the players that I think are statistically most inclined to win this tournament based on their recent form and their course fit. But I think there are some interesting things to pay attention to if you are in the mindset of crossing some guys out, which I do think that you can do for this event. I am of the belief that there is a much smaller group of players that can actually win this tournament. I can talk about why that is. This is a golf course that takes a lot of variance actually out of the equation, uh, in my opinion. But let's talk about some trends. So so nine of the last 10 winners were under the age of 40. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So yes, experience matters, but after a certain point, it's just not a tournament that is generally won by old guys. Every single one of the last 10 winners were already in the world top 30. Eight of them were in uh, the top 20, and eight of the last 10 winners have played in at least three Masters. So you want to get to three. Three is kind of the um, three is kind of the point where players really start to figure this course out. There hasn't been a first-time champion at the Masters since Fuzzy Zeller in 1979. Jordan Spieth and Danny Willett both won on their second appearance, which is not impossible. And then current form, it is very rare for a player to come into the Masters not playing some really, really good golf this season. Uh, And you will hear that ad nauseum, but it is true. All 10 of the last 10 winners have finished in the top 30 in at least one of their last two starts before Augusta. Seven of the last 10 winners had a top five in one of their last two starts before Augusta. Uh, and or in a stroke play event in at least the same or previous month as the Masters. So the really one outlier was Hideki, who had zero top 10s in 10 PGA Tour events leading in, and he was a pretty sneaky pick, but he was still the 25th ranked player in the world, uh, and he was coming off a 30th at the Valero Texas Open the week before, a group stage exit at the match play, and a miscut at the players. So nothing really that special out of Hideki, but he was really the exception to the rule. You look at Scotty the next year, and he wins in Phoenix. He wins the API. He wins the match play, becomes world number one. Now, most Masters winners aren't coming in as hot as Scheffler, but you run through it, and it's like, well, DJ, three wins, seven top tens that year. Tiger had two top tens, fifth at the match play. Patrick Reed, three top tens, second at the Valspar, ninth at the match play. Sergio won earlier that year. Danny Willett won earlier that year. Jordan Spieth won earlier that year and had six top tens. Bubba Watson won earlier that year at Riviera, had three top tens. The list goes on. And that's why basically the cutoff point has been 66 to one, which was Danny Willett's pre-tournament price. So if you're just going off history, you're basically cutting things off on the odds board at that, I don't know, Shane Lowry, Tommy Fleetwood, Tom Kim zone. Historically, at least, I know it's fun and you can find some big numbers on good players, but generally they aren't winning. Uh, And then recent major form is another one. Nine of the last 10 winners have posted a top six in a major in one of the previous two seasons. Even Danny Willett finished T6 at the Open, just two majors before winning the Masters. Uh, And then if you're thinking about back in Sam Burns or whoever wins this week at the Volero, 
uh, it's usually not a guy going back to back. Only Phil Mickelson in the last 20 years has won the week before the Masters and then the Masters. Uh, so before we talk about some of the stats that I think are important, let's take a quick look at the weather forecast. And I obviously this is something to monitor as the week goes on. But uh, Monday of Masters week looks pretty benign. Uh, a little chilly. Temperatures in the 60s. Tuesday, uh, cloudy, and it gets a little bit hotter. It starts to get into the 70s and even the 80s. So pretty nice weather, overcast skies and warm. Uh, and then Wednesday, it's overcast too. I mean, there's there you're not getting really any sun, but it's warm. Uh, so you're getting by 11 a.m. It's 77 degrees, 86 degrees by 2 p.m. So kind of hot and muggy and a little bit windy. And then Thursday, the first day of tournament play, and honestly, it starts the prior night on Wednesday, there's some rain in the forecast. And what is a Masters without a good weather delay? But it seems like as of now, Thursday looks okay. There's some rain. It's just going to be cloudy all day. Not a ton of wind, some gusts, and then some light showers around 5 p.m. So it looks like they'll get most play in. But then on Friday, it is supposed to rain all day, um, starting essentially throughout the night, 2 a.m., 5 a.m., all the way up through 11 p.m., all the way, honestly, through the next morning into Saturday. It's just supposed to pour and be cloudy and overcast all week and super windy and rainy on Friday. And then finally, it starts to really, I guess, clear up around 11 a.m. on Saturday. And it's still overcast, but then it looks like the weather should be pretty good for most of Saturday. And then Sunday, there's a little bit more rain. And even if this tournament, God forbid, it has to go into Monday, it rains on Monday as well. So uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of rain in the forecast, mainly for Friday. Uh, it is supposed to rain all day Friday uh, and even a little bit into Saturday morning. So, and then a little bit on Sunday too. So it's going to be interesting to see if that holds. Uh, I have no idea what it's like down there. I'm excited to see. I know that Los Angeles has gotten more rain in these last three months than uh it has in years, but completely different type of the part of the country, completely different weather conditions. I'm excited to talk to more people that are familiar with the weather patterns and the rain in that area. And we shall see. But as of now, uh, pray for some of the rain to clear up because it looks like at the bare minimum, it is supposed to rain all day on Friday. And when it's not raining, it's going to be kind of overcast and hot and muggy uh kind of screams Rory McIlroy to me if I'm being totally honest but yeah the golf course the more rain that it gets it's just going to play even damn longer and hopefully be even a little bit more receptive in in terms of the green so maybe you even take a little bit off the skill required in terms of of iron play and and add more on to like distance to apex and stuff like that because if you have a wet golf course uh it is just in my opinion going to help the guys who hit the ball and carry the ball a long way off the tee even more um all right let's talk about 
some of the stats that I'm looking at. So I already, I've already alluded to this, especially with the weather conditions. Um, but I don't think you really need to fool around and make the argument that at this point, the way the course has changed over the years, um, this is a golf course where you want to carry the ball a really long way off the tee. Um, and the ability, the, the skill of driving at Augusta, uh, both statistically and from the eye test is probably the easiest of the skill sets at Augusta. I think there's more leeway in terms of what you do off the tee in terms of the room that you have to operate than there is in terms of the skill required that you need to have with your irons, with your short game and with your putter. It ranked 18th out of 38 courses in strokes gain off the tee difficulty last year, which is by far the easiest strokes gain aspect of Augusta national. It features the second widest fairways on the PGA tour last year, it ranked 17th out of 38 courses in missed fairway penalty 23rd out of 38 courses in rough penalty, 28th out of 38 courses in non-rough penalty. So by the numbers, the easiest thing about Augusta is still off the tee due to the room, the amount of room that players have to operate, the lack of thick rough, the lack of too many water hazards in play off the tee. And again, every year we debate how much distance actually matters at Augusta, but because the par fives, it is so important to hit the par fives in two strokes. I think that the reality of the situation is, is that the way that the fairways grow, the course changes that have been made. Augusta is now probably the longest golf course on the PGA tour. So players that have an extremely high carry distance do possess an advantage. And when you really look at it, Zach Johnson is really the huge outlier. And those who have been consistently able to reach the par fives in two strokes have a huge advantage, potentially even more so on a wet golf course. Um, and that doesn't just mean carry distance off the tee. It also means long iron play, which we'll talk about as well. But, you know, two, 13 and 15 are all par fives that are reachable by many, but not all players. And Patrick Cantlay talked about this in a recent interview. He talked about how now he feels like and he's played, I think he, I think this is his sixth or seventh Masters, but he recently said there isn't a hole on the golf course that isn't uh, hard and as far as you can hit it uh, with the driver. They've made the course so long that it doesn't matter whether you turn the ball over right to left. Basically, a straight drive of over 300 yards is what you are looking for on every hole. It has changed from a golf course where you have to curve it more. He talked about five as an example of a hole that used to be more of a dogleg left that players used to turn three woods over on all the time. But now the hole is 500 plus yards dead straight. They've taken the playability out of the bunkers. It's basically just pitch out bunkers and they're 50 or 60 yards farther away from the green than they used to be. So now it's essentially just two hard and high shots to the green. So I will say definitively, I do believe that distance really matters a ton at this golf course. I, I am knocking players that have below driving distance and, and giving the edge to players that can hit the ball a long way. I just think strategically 
there isn't a player caddy team that is going to walk through and look at this golf course and say to themselves, okay, the strategy is anything other than hitting the driver pretty much as far as I can on every single one of these holes. As far as approach play goes, 35.9% of strokes gained last year came on approach, which is above the tour average. Augusta National is often referred to as a second shot golf course because of the easiness in terms of the amount of room to operate there is off the tee. So players that are a little bit more wild with the driver, um, they're still going to be able to hit the fairways and be in a position where they're going to have a manageable second shots to the green, or at least be in a position where they're playing from the short grass. Whereas on other courses, they would be in tons of trouble. Uh, So what that does is that places the emphasis squarely on the second shot, which is not easy at Augusta, despite the fact that these are large greens, they really do not play that large. And Augusta ranked second out of 38 courses in strokes gain approach difficulty. It's still featured, again, despite featuring 64-foot, on average, square-foot greens, it's still featured the fourth most difficult greens to hit on the PGA Tour. A lot of that is because if you are not hitting the right pocket, the ball is going to ricochet towards some of those collection areas it's going to catch a lot of those slopes on the green that McKenzie does so well uh, and that is what makes it the toughest approach course on the PGA Tour inside 150 yards it's harder at Augusta to stick a wedge than it is at probably any other course on the PGA Tour and of course the second toughest course on the PGA Tour greater than 150 yards which is where the vast majority of approach shots come from This is definitively a mid-to-long iron course. Last year, 20.2% of approach shots came from 150 to 175. 17.3% of approach shots came from 175 to 200 yards. And 32% of approach shots came from 200 yards plus. With the rain that's in the forecast, I would not be surprised if that even increases more this year, especially with the course getting a little bit longer too. So the most exaggerated difference last year compared to tour average was that 200 yards plus range. Uh, It is one of the most long iron intensive courses on tour. And I would be looking, I know at least I am pretty darn closely this week. If you're kind of narrowing it down to three or four things it's carry distance it's long iron play uh and then we'll get into short game right now so short game is another one that you're going to hear at augusta and and after a certain point it's like okay you know if carry distance is so important and approach plays or long iron play specifically is so important like is around the green play really important too like you can't just say that everything's important but Uh, Last year, it turned out that every single year, statistically, there is this really strong correlation with around the green and 20.8% of strokes gained still came around the green, which I believe is because, you know, the approach play on this course is so difficult with the amount of long iron shots that even the best iron players are inevitably going to miss greens. And of course, it helps if you are an absolutely elite long iron player but even if you are an elite long iron player you are inevitably going to have to rely on your short game quite a bit at least a couple times around at augusta 
we saw it last year with Scotty Scheffler with that huge one on three. But compared to the tour average of 14.5%, this is one of the highest marks in terms of short game that you will see statistically at any PGA Tour course. It ranked fourth out of 38 courses in strokes gain around the green difficulty. And the prior year, it was the toughest course on the PGA Tour in around the green difficulty. There are a lot of reasons for this. Uh, The bunkers are deep. Um, The collection areas uh, are usually, you're generally chipping at elevation at Augusta. There's just so many rolling hills and slopes around Augusta that even when you're chipping from inside 30 yards, chances are the ball is going to be below your feet, above your feet. You're going to be having to factor in all these different slopes on the green, generally, you're going to have to get incredibly creative. Um, and that's what makes chipping so hard at Augusta National is that unless you are absolutely dialed with your irons, chances are your ball is going to roll into these collection areas where you're not going to be at the same elevation level of the green. And you're either going to be chipping uphill or chipping downhill to a green that maybe it's in a bowl, maybe it's on the other side of a bowl, but the degree of difficulty of chip shots at Augusta National, there's not a standard, very rarely, there's not a standard stock run-of-the-mill, you know, short game area driving range chip shot. Every single one of the chip shots on this course requires some creativity. And that is why in 2021, you have seven of the top 11 finishers ranked inside the top 10 for strokes gain around the green, while last year, eight of the top 11 we're in the top 12 and around the green, which again, pretty abnormal to see for a PGA Tour event on a regular leaderboard. Uh, and then, of course, you know, in my opinion, I think that this course probably out of maybe any other course on tour is the least putting dependent. Statistically, that is the case. 26.5% of strokes gain came with the flat stick, which is well below the tour average of 35.6%. It's just a case of. Short game so important, approach play is so important that this course separates so much from tee to green that when you get to the greens, um, statistically, it just doesn't play as much a role in this uh, in this tournament historically as general ball striking and short game and tee to green play has. Um, with that being said, Augusta ranked as the hardest putting course on the PGA Tour. Last year, it ranked 17th out of 38 courses in putting inside five feet, first in putting from five to 15 feet, and first in putting from 15 feet plus. So it's still probably the toughest mid to lag putting course on the PGA Tour because there's so much undulation, so many internal breaks and character to these greens. Alistair McKenzie, in my opinion, is the greatest designer of greens to have ever lived. And if you've ever played an Alistair McKenzie course, whether it be Cypress Point or Pasatiempo or the Valley Club, I know what the Valley Club, probably top five most engaging greens I've ever played and probably top five most confusing greens I've ever played. The most times I've had a 20-foot putt and had my hands up in the air thinking after, like, wow, that goes that, goes that way? I didn't even see that slope. Um, so... You know, I thought about this a lot. I do think that I was thinking about this. I kind of have a working theory that the aim point guys 
might have a bit of an edge here. That might help. Like if you're really good at aim point, that might help you on these greens. I don't have the list of golfers off the top of my, uh, all the golfers in the field that use aim point, but off the top of my head, I know Homa uses it. I know Hovland uses it. Hovland's actually putted really well at Augusta. Keegan, those are all aim point guys. So that might help on Mackenzie greens, but really it's more about experience. And I think the interesting thing about the masters is how do you reconcile the countless examples of poor putters winning the masters on a course that statistically is so difficult in terms of its, you know, its statistical putting difficulty. Right. Um, And I think the reason for that is, is that it's not necessarily about whether players are a good overall putter or success putting on other courses is necessarily predictive of whether or not you're going to putt well at Augusta. I think these greens are so incredibly nuanced that course experience is almost more predictive than general putting stats, right? And sometimes you have guys come in like a Will Zalatoris that for whatever reason are below average putters a lot of the time on other PGA Tour courses. And something about Augusta, they free themselves up. Uh, I don't know exactly what it is. Sometimes, Sometimes guys that are statistically worse putters actually prefer super, super fast greens. Um, I know I do. So in terms of putting at Augusta, I'm, I am looking at bent grass putting. I am looking at fast green putting. I am looking at approach putting, which is a stat on Rick Run Good that you can throw in your models that measures way better than three putt avoidance, how good of a lag putter a player actually is. But at the end of the day, What's far more predictive in terms of putting success at Augusta than any putting stats from any other courses is course history, is how is how many times you've played Augusta. And, you know, I would still say, I would probably say that a guy who is a statistically poor putter who has played Augusta five times has a better chance to putt well at Augusta than statistically a great putter who has never played Augusta before. That's how much nuance there is involved with these greens. So I do have a smaller weight on putting than normal because obviously this is just such a heavy tee to green test and you really want to look at almost course history as a more predictive metric of how players are going to putt at Augusta than how players have putted on other courses. There's just that much nuance and character and experience involved in these greens. And then of course, the final piece at Augusta in terms of the things that you really need to be paying attention to is that it of course has the most predictive course history out of any course on the PGA tour. And it's not particularly close Um, this is a golf course that players talk about how you're always learning new things and it's a golf course that is always evolving. I mean, even in the last two years, there's been so many changes and there are multiple things about the golf course that are different this year compared to last year. Um, but the reason why course history is so important is I talked about how these are the most complex greens that players will face 
all season. I talked about how course history is almost more predictive of your success on the greens than whether you are a good putter at all the other PGA Tour courses. And, you know, it's things like that. It's subtle things like the wind, too, right? Uh, That's another thing that Cantley talked about, particularly on holes like 12. Um, And this is one of the reasons why, you know, I think intangible stuff like a JT Bones partnership really matters is you need to be able to read the trees because the wind kind of goes in and out of the trees at Augusta and can be incredibly deceiving if you aren't familiar with certain patterns and gusts. Um, But this is probably the biggest week where you want to value how players have performed at this course in the past. I think in terms of finding a winner, it matters a lot more than some of the guys you're going to play farther down the board on DraftKings. But uh, there's a reason why seven of the last 10 champions have posted a previous top five at Augusta. Uh, and then in terms of if you want to look at a couple other reference points, if you're trying to look for players that maybe don't have a ton of experience at Augusta, but you want to find other courses that they've played at before that can maybe simulate success at the Masters, I would probably look at Kapalua because that is a course where you can bomb away with driver you're still going to have a ton of long irons, ton of undulation on the fairways. You rarely ever have a flat lie, and you have these really big undulating greens. They aren't McKenzie greens, but Core and Crenshaw, in my opinion, are up there with Doak as probably you know the best modern designer of greens. The big difference is the speed. Kapalua has much slower greens than Augusta, but in terms of the slopes and the contours and the size and the pockets, um, and in the general skill set that is required at that golf course, Kapalua is pretty good. Riviera is another course I think that does favor length off the tee. It does favor strong mid to long iron play and a deft touch around the greens. And you look at the guys who have been so good at Riviera, Adam Scott, Bubba Watson, Dustin Johnson, Rory McIlroy, John Rahm, Xander Shoffley. I mean, those are the those have been the top six guys at Riviera over the past fifteen years. Those six players have combined for forty top twenty fives, twenty six top tens, four runner ups, and four wins at the Masters. So maybe if you're looking for a guy that hasn't played Augusta, but if you can find somebody that's had success at Riviera or Kapalua. I guess the only other one that I would maybe throw in there is, you know, Jack Nicholas has spoken openly about how he designed Muirfield Village in a way to uh, simulate Augusta National, and he drew a ton of inspiration for Augusta National. And there's obviously a ton of crossover on that leaderboard as well. If you look at the former Memorial winners and runner-ups who have also experienced loads of success at the Masters, you're looking at Rom. Adam Scott, Fowler, Rose, Hideki, Matt Kuchar, obviously Tiger, Kenny Perry, Zach Johnson, Fred Couples. Those are all guys that have won or finished runner-up at the Memorial and also have been incredible at the Masters as well. So I plugged all that stuff into a model and you can get my full model inputs if you want to copy it completely in my Rick Run Good course preview article on Monday morning. But I will give you the top 20 guys that it spit out for me. And 
I got to say, I, I guess this is a good thing that, you know, what I'm looking at statistically is very much aligned with the odds board, at least at the top. Uh, but my top 11, at least, is essentially the top 11 guys in the odds board. It's not the exact same order, uh, but that is kind of what you're going to get at the Masters, right? And that's why it's a tough week for me, and I'll talk about this a ton with Kobe, but I thrive under certain settings where my model can identify discrepancies on the odds board. And with the Masters, it's like, okay, I know exactly what I'm looking for this week. I'm incredibly confident in my model. But guess what? This is also the tournament where the odds books have the most information on this golf course out of any other golf course either. So what am I really going to do to separate myself? There are a couple things. I think I'm probably a little bit heavier on certain carry distance stuff and long iron play stuff and uh, a, maybe a couple things in terms of like how much I'm factoring in the potential for weather in a wet golf course. But the top 20 that I'll give you, John Rahm, who, you know, makes me feel good about my December selection. He, I picked him to win the Masters in December. He's won a cool five times in his last 12 starts since then. And he is the number one player in my model, not Scotty Scheffler. Uh, it is John Rahm for me. Uh, Rory McIlroy is number two, and that is probably the big decision that I'm facing right now uh, is between those two at the top. There's not a ton of difference between Rory and Rahm for me at the top. Honestly, there's not a ton of difference between the top four, which is Rahm, Rory, Xander, Scheffler. And Xander's right in there too, uh, obviously featuring the best number of the Rory Rom Scheffler group. Uh, and then number five is Tony Finau. Number six is Cameron Smith with some less recent and limited data. Number seven is Justin Thomas. No huge surprise. Number eight, Jordan Spieth. Number nine, Patrick Cantlay. Number 10, Colin Morikawa. Number 11, Max Homa. I think those are the top 11 guys on the odds board. Um, 12 is Will Zalatoris. 13 is Sung J.M. 14 is Dustin Johnson. In fact, those might be the top 14 guys on the odds board. And then I have Justin Rose, Taylor Gooch again with some less than recent numbers on Gooch. Uh, Hideki Matsuyama, 17. Harold Varder popping his head out at 18. He might be a uh, an interesting look at 6,500, although he's finished 23rd in one appearance at the Masters. Although, again not dealing with the most recent live data in terms of strokes gained for Harold Varner. Um, but he is by far him and Gooch, I guess, and Mito are by far the lowest price players that I have in my top 20. So Varner's 18, Jason Day is 19 and Mito Pereira is 20. Um, all right. So I talked about this a ton with Boston Capper on the last podcast that I did. Um, I basically think that as betters this week, and I guess I'll focus a little bit more of the rest of the attention on this podcast. Uh, we'll wrap it up soon. We're already at the hour mark, but uh, a little bit more on betting just because I'm going to go far more in depth uh, when it comes to DraftKings on the podcast on Monday night with Kobe. Uh, 
But as it stands now, I, I think there is, for me, the way that the top of the board is priced with Rory and Rom and Scheffler, uh, it would be a single bullet for me, most likely, if I bet Rory or Rom. I'm not going to bet Scheffler. I think it's too hard to go back to back. It's only happened three times in history. And if he beats me, he beats me. And I actually think that there are outside of just how hard it has been to repeat. Maybe it's because of the extra media obligations or whatever it may be. If there's really anyone who's going to do it, it's probably Scotty Scheffler, but I'm just going to take the historical data on that one and cross them off at the top and narrow my focus between Rory and Rom. Um, and for me, as it stands on Saturday evening, I haven't really made a decision yet. I don't think I have to right now. I am going to do have to write an article for Golf Monthly tomorrow where I write somebody up. So I guess I'll have to think about this a little bit more deeply tomorrow and check back in on Monday morning for that article. But I think as betters, unless you want to bet in a way that, in my opinion, is irresponsible, if you are betting one of these guys of Rory McIlroy, John Rahm, or Scotty Scheffler that are all in the 7-1, to 8-1 to one range, um, be- betting anyone with them is, is irresponsible, in my opinion, the way that I structure my betting card. And my hope is that one of them shifts to 10 or 11 or 12, and maybe in that case I can add a guy in the 30s or the 40s or the 50s or whatever. I haven't run the math on what works for how I structure things. But as it stands now with these all three of these guys hanging out like plus 800, um, I would only bet one of them. And I am not necessarily sticking my noses up at the prices. I'm just holding out hope that a ROM, it's probably not going to be a Rory, but maybe if a ROM falls to 10 or 11 or 12, uh, I'm still holding out hope for that possibility. I will say this. Um, I do think Patrick Cantlay can win this golf tournament. Um, I'm probably higher on Patrick Cantlay. I'm probably higher on the three-pack potential if I can fit them all. I can definitely at least fit two of them. But the three guys that I think are in that next bubble that can absolutely win the Masters that are my favorites personally, that check the most boxes for me statistically— um, that I have the most faith in and confidence in are Cantlay, Xander, and Finau. So if I wasn't to do a single bullet on a Rory or a Rom, I would bet at least two of Cantlay, Xander, and Finau. Um, hopefully maybe three if Finau drifts closer to 40, which I don't know if I would count on. Um, but... I, I I have it, you know, I, I would much rather see Rory McIlroy win the Masters than John Rahm. I will say that I was fully on Team Rahm uh, when I recorded my last podcast earlier this week when I broke down the numbers and saw how well Rory was playing and how close. And I'll probably after Kobe, I'm worried I'll get suckered in because I'm such a fan of his. But uh I find myself talking myself already a little bit closer to it's it's a tough judgment call 
as it stands right now between uh, between Rory and Rom for me, or just scrapping it and seeing how maybe guys like Cantlay and Xander and Finau, if I can find a way to fit three those three guys, if 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 Cantlay starts getting to the twenty fives and and Xander finds a twenty five and maybe Finau finds a forty or a 35 or something like that. But, um, I've eliminated, I I've, I've essentially eliminated betting everybody except those five players, uh, Rory, Rom, Finau, Cantlay, and Xander. Uh, maybe if I get in a situation where I have a, a tiny bit of room based on the numbers, uh, you know, I, I think some of the longer shot guys that I do think have, I don't know if a chance to win, but I think there are there is value on a Justin Rose. Uh, I found myself getting a little bit higher on Will Zalatoris than I had a really originally expected, despite the injury concerns. When I really looked at how he's been playing, um, I'm probably starting to talk more about uh in the context of DraftKings than I am outright betting at this point now uh but in terms of outright uh, and I would mention Sung JM as well uh in there but in terms of outright it's basically those five guys and I will have tons of more content throughout the week where I will talk about this so uh, this is my early look, how it stands for me on Saturday. Uh, I hope that you found some value in this in terms of helping you break down what some things to look at this week. If I could encourage one talking point, it would be that I think that the course changes just continue every single year to make this more of a golf course where distance is more advantageous than shot making. And every year I start to find myself higher and higher on distance and long iron play. And I also think because of the weather conditions and the potential course conditions that that could even favor the long ball even more. Um, So that will do it for me. You can find me this week all over the place. I do that podcast with Kobe on Monday nights. I will be back on my good friend Brian Kirshner's podcast, Tappin' Birdie, on Tuesday night. Ton of writing that I do, whether it be for the site with Rick Run Good, um, course preview on Monday, uh, fantasy rankings on Tuesday, and of course, final DraftKings thoughts on Wednesday. If you're listening to this podcast and you want the best place to reach me for master's questions, if you want the most in-depth writing that I do on the masters, sign up for that weekly pass, rickrungood.com, promo code Andy. That is the important part so they know I sent you. That is what helps me out a lot. Um, and we'd love to have you over the team over there. If you're already a member, fantastic. Best of luck this week. Um, if you're not a member, there are plenty of places to find me as well. Again, I will tweet all of the stuff that I do uh, over the course of the week, uh, podcasts and such, although uh, I'm taking it a little bit lighter this year than I have in years past in terms of uh, the things that I said yes to. I want to... 
I want to give my all in the things that I regularly commit to and, and do a couple guest spots with the, um, with the ones that matter to me. So I will be all over the place this week. You can find me on Twitter. Everything that I do will be posted on Twitter. Uh, Best of luck with your bets for the rest of the weekend at the Valero Texas Open. Happy Masters Week, and we will see you next time. Cheers. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style. All for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.